If somebody told you on New Year's Day 2020 how much the world was going to change, you probably wouldn't have believed them. But suppose you had known, what would you have done differently? How would you have prepared? What if you had even more time to prepare? Say, three years. What action would you have taken? Would you have moved somewhere different? Applied for different jobs? Developed different skills? Warned your friends? And do you think they'd even have believed you? We can only look back now at these hypotheticals and wonder what we could have done. But here's the thing. There's another crisis heading our way, a crisis that is sure to be worse than COVID-19. The climate crisis. We still have time to take action and as a result live happier, healthier and fairer lives. So the question actually isn't what should we have done, it's what will we do now? And how can we use our experience of COVID as a wake-up call to take real action? Welcome to the COVID Alarm Clock. Hello everyone, my name is Darwin. And I'm Ellen Hagerty. And you are tuned in to the COVID Alarm Clock, the podcast that takes lessons from the COVID pandemic and applies them to the impending climate crisis. So Dara and I, we're two friends and we met doing a master's on climate change in DCU. Um, and we both have a shared passion for the natural world. And our aim is to discuss, consider and draw conclusions from humanity's experience this past year in an effort to help wake us all up to the future that climate change is going to bring. And we are recording this podcast remotely from our respective homes, either end of Dublin City in Ireland, on the 21st of November 2020. And this episode is focused around the subject of politics. So yeah, we're looking at politics today, focusing quite a bit on governance. And I suppose it might be worth giving a bit of context to the political situation in Ireland when COVID arrived to our shores back in February 2020. Yeah, Dara, that's a good place to start. Um, and I do think it's very fair to say that we didn't see this coming at all. Um, because on February the 8th, 2020, we held, Ireland, held a general election and COVID was barely mentioned. Um, and what happened then was we were essentially left with a hung parliament with no clear path to forming a majority government. Um, and we could look back now at the unfortunate timing of needing to form a new government as a missed opportunity to prepare for the inevitable arrival of COVID. Yeah, yeah, it just wasn't on the political radar at all. Um, and then things changed so quickly. So we had our first COVID case on the 29th of February. Schools closed on the 12th of March. And then by the 27th of March, we were in a full lockdown. Um, and thinking back to February, like, I don't know if it was naivety or denial, disbelief, or maybe even just a lack of understanding. But even though COVID was spreading rapidly all over the world, we still, like, didn't really know for sure or maybe just couldn't believe or accept that COVID was going to arrive to our shores. Yeah, and, like, Dara, I think that mix of naivety, denial and disbelief that you've mentioned, that lack of understanding, like, that is so... It's such a familiar feeling for people who are interested in climate change. Um, yeah, it really is. And like, looking back, you'd kind of wonder, you know, where are politicians being informed by experts about what was going to unfold with COVID? Um, and they just kind of didn't or couldn't acknowledge it because it just seemed so unbelievable um, and even maybe unlikely. 
Um, and Dara, like that's exactly what's happening with climate change. It's and it's been happening for years, and it's got to stop. We don't have time for that to continue as it's as it's going. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so this episode, we're going to look at what we can learn about the politics of climate change by looking at the political response to COVID in Ireland. So to start off, we're going to go back to the day that I think COVID officially became a political issue in Ireland, the 12th of March, 2020. And that was the day that Leo Varadkar addressed the nation from Washington, actually. So he was still traveling internationally, which just shows how we really didn't see it coming. But that was the day when he announced the closure of schools and some other measures. Looking back at that speech from from Leo Varadkar and thinking back to that time, it's been really, really informative and insightful, I think. It's, Dara, it's like the, do you remember where you were when moments, isn't it? Like, yeah, I'll yeah. never forget. Like, I, I, I'm a vet, but I, I also tutor. And so I had a gang of students in the lab and we actually had the television on waiting. We knew, we heard that there was going to be this huge announcement from the States and we had the television on waiting to see where our lives were going to be going for the next number of weeks. You know, what fate awaited us all. Yeah, I, I remember I was in the bus station, uh, the CityLink bus station in Dublin. I was going home to Galway for the weekend <laughs> And I knew, like, I the announcement hadn't been made, but I knew on the way to the bus station I'd be going home for more than the weekend. Yeah. But still only packed, like, a little backpack. Do you know, it was, it, was, it was a really weird thing. And also doing the research there, there were only two weeks between the first COVID case in Ireland and that announcement. Yeah. And it felt like a lifetime. Dara, um, that's mad. You know, you say you knew something bad was coming, but you still didn't prepare for it. You only packed a little <laughs> backpack. That's climate change, Dara. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it is. And I must say, I found it, even for myself to understand it, um, thinking about those couple of weeks, nobody was on the same page some people were being really diligent. Some people were saying, well, it's grand. We'll just carry on as we're carrying on until we're told to do otherwise. And there was this huge mixture of of approaches and levels of understanding and attitudes towards it. And I was chatting to a friend about this whole thing. Um, and he said, like, from February, he stopped going to parties. Um which was a really responsible thing to do mm. now looking back. But people at the time were like, oh, what what are you doing? And I think that's such a good way of understanding the moment we're at in climate change now. Yeah. Because everyone is in different places with it. And some people, like at the time, some people were really keeping up with the COVID news, the latest scientific developments, and they were and they knew this was going to get bad and they started taking it upon themselves to take action and be proactive and then there were other people that said well it's grand we haven't been told to do otherwise so why would i worry about it and that's exactly where we are with climate change i feel except it's it's not 2 weeks it's been like that for the last 
five years or for some people it's been like that for the last 30 years and it's still like that. And for me, because I was going in teaching, you know, and I was teach, I teach young adults and a, a broad mixture of people. And I, I knew, I suppose, you know, with a scientific background as a vet, I knew that th- this potentially was going to be dangerous for me to be mixing with people all of the time. And I, I had a feeling of helplessness, Dara, because I had to go in because that was my job. And nobody would change the system to, to make my life better for me and to make life safer for my students by potentially, you know, moving a lot of our coursework online until lockdown. Um, so even though I knew there was a problem, I, I, was, I, wasn't, I was helpless. I couldn't do anything about it until there was actually system change where the government yeah, came out and, and made system change. Totally. And I think that's I think that's what was so striking to me about that speech when I looked back on it was that was, as we said in the introduction, that was the day it became a political issue. You know, before that, it was whatever you're having yourself. And then that speech, the first one of the first things that he did or the main thing that Leo Varadkar did in that speech was acknowledge like we have a problem. Let's have a listen to a few quotes along those lines from that speech now. So here is Leo Vradkar, um, our Taoiseach, on March the 12th, 2020, and he is standing outside the Irish Embassy in Washington, D.C. Yeah, so he's outside the Irish Embassy, not under his bed like you are, Ellen, now. So apologies <laughs> for the poor sound quality. <laughs> OK, let's listen to the speech. There will be many more cases. More people will get sick. And unfortunately, we must face the tragic reality that some people will die. The virus is all over the world. It will continue to spread, but it can be slowed. Its impact can be reduced, making it easier for our health service to cope and giving our scientists more time to develop better testing, treatments and a vaccine. We have not witnessed a pandemic of this nature in living memory, and this is uncharted territory for us. We said we would take the right actions at the right time. And we have to move now to have the greatest impact. That The power of that speech, you know, people were in different pages before that, mostly. I mean, Cheltenham still happened after this speech. But that was the day that there was no getting away from it anymore. That was the day that put everyone on the same page. And so even regardless of what he said, the actual action of the speech was powerful. And we're still waiting for that day with climate change. I mean, then also also looking at the speech, you know, a couple a couple of things that jumped out at me um, in relation to how they outline the approach to COVID and how that compares with the approach to climate change was... Um, Our own National Public Health Emergency Team met last night and has issued new advice to government. We're acting on that advice today. And I suppose, Ellen, we know about how much scientific advice there is out there for our government and for other governments um, to take action. And it's just not being heeded. Well, Dara, like we have an international agreement that we have actually signed up to. 197 countries have signed up to it. It's called the the Paris Agreement. Um, 98% of scientists agree, you know, that climate change is real and that we have to do something about it very, very quickly. I mean, we have, we have, if you look at the IPCC report and, you know, that, that's, that's what the Paris Agreement is based on. So the Paris Agreement is essentially 
all of the countries of the world came together to address the problems of climate change. And they sat down to see what they could do in order to mitigate against climate change. So what can they do to to help stop it? And what can they do to adapt to help just keep countries safe from what is coming? And we, we sat down with all of those other countries in the world to make a plan and we made a plan, but nobody appears to be uh, sticking to the plan. It's a bit like plumossing almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll do it. I'll be there in a second. You know, <laughs> but just like yeah, 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 yeah. And there's actually a great, a great quote from Mike Ryan from the WHO. So he's 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 Irish, and in terms of taking action in relation to COVID, he he had a great speech in the middle of March where he said, uh, "Speed trumps perfection." Everyone is afraid of the consequence of error, but the greatest error is not to move. The greatest error is to be paralysed by the fear of failure. But Dara, we're not paralysed by the fear of failure. We're paralysed by the fear of change. <laughs> but it's the same thing. Yeah. You know, it, it, it is the same thing. Change is potentially the same as failure because everyone's saying, ah, sure, I'm happy out as I am. And if I change, then things might be worse than they are. Yeah. So I think so I think it is the fear of failure and I think it's um and it's it's that thing I think that paralysis comes from people looking around countries looking around and saying well they're not doing anything why so should why should yeah. I do anything and it's this real you know almost a tragedy of the commons but I think direct tragedy of the commons that's really interesting Tragedy of the Commons. I didn't know until I started college. I'd never heard this tragedy of the Commons. It was like, you know, I'm I'm from a veterinary scientific background. I think a tragedy of the Commons is a much more philosophical type of concept. Um, I think it'd be really nice to just explain what the tragedy of the Commons even is. I think the story that's originally used is that there is a commonage, there's a field. Um, and there are a hundred people in the village with access to this field. And the field ha- is big enough that every villager can put one cow in the field. And a fine that field. will keep the grass replenished and it will keep the cattle fed. And one person in the hundred realizes, Jesus, if I put another cow in there, no one will notice. And I'll have, I'll have double the beef for the year ahead. And then someone else cottons onto it and someone else cottons onto it. And eventually we end up with like, you know, 160, 170 cattle in there. The field gets ruined and and it's ruined for everyone. That everyone takes a little bit more than they need, than is sustainable. Um, and the ecosystem and of the field collapses. It can't regenerate. It no longer becomes a sustainable field. Exactly. And I think that's... Um, <laughs> and so where we are now with with the earth is that um we all have we all have extra cattle in this field <laughs> and the experts are saying here lads will you get them cows out of that field which is in a right state altogether for feck's sake and we're saying well he's not taking his he's not taking his cow out of my so field, why should i the field so why should i and that's uh and that's where we are <laughs> yeah and look yeah we are joking around but <laughs> That's exactly where we are. We are using more of the Earth's resources than is sustainable. And like the long-term impacts are going to be dire. Like we see the tragedy of the commons in operation with COVID as well. 
And, you know, it's like if a couple of people ignore the lockdown, it's it's fine usually. Yeah, you don't get this huge spike in cases. But if everyone ignores the, the lockdown, the virus will just spread through the community and we are completely banjoed. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, and the people that are getting away with it are relying on everybody else to be following the rules. Yeah. But just to to go back just to the, the Paris Agreement um, and taking that, that everyone agreed on their fair share. Based on the goal, the original goal of the Paris Agreement was uh, to keep warming well below two degrees with an aspirational goal of one and a half degrees. So we've already talked about the science uh, in the last episode. And we know that one and a half degrees is really bad. And basically what happened after the Paris Agreement was it was just a small island uh, states who were going to be basically underwater, going to disappear because of climate change. So they made this plea for the one and a half degrees. And part of the decision was that the IPCC would make a report to look at the impacts of one and a half degrees and two degrees. And when they did this report, they realized... Oh, Jesus, one and a half is going to be bad, very bad. And two degrees is going to be disastrous. One thing that really stands out for me with the difference between one and a half to two degrees is the amount of refugees, the difference in the number of refugees between one and a half and and two degrees. At two degrees, you go from like several million refugees to triple digit millions of refugees and I just can't even comprehend that. Yeah, I think there's I think there's so much stuff that is hard to comprehend and there's such a level of uncertainty that the way I've come to understand it now, to understand all these risks, because, you know, the risks of extreme weather goes up so much um, with every little bit of warming and we don't know the knock-on effects that they're going to have in terms of places being livable, in terms of food supply, in terms of people being able to stay in their homes, that I just kind of think that every every good year that we have is a roll of a dice. Say we have 20 dice. And every bit of warming, and basically for things to go wrong, we need all the 20 dice to come up as sixes. You know, we need we need a bad run of events yeah. for things to go horribly wrong on a global level. But every bit of warming adds a bit of weight to one of the sixes. Yeah. And every bit of warming, it's not that, oh, if we get to two degrees, then in the year 2073, everything's going to go terribly wrong. It's that with every bit of warming, it's more likely that everything is going to go terribly wrong. So I don't really think about the specifics anymore. I just know something could go wrong. But seeing as this podcast is explanatory, uh, I might as well explain So it could be issues with food production in places we rely on for imports and then the potential knock-on effects where maybe a country doesn't export to us because they need the food for themselves. And we saw that with COVID, you know, breakdown in supply chains, empty supermarkets and panic buying. Yeah, yeah. It could be drought or famine in one part of the world that leads to conflict and geopolitical unrest. And like Dara, we're seeing that at the moment in South America with trains of caravans of refugees trying to get into the US. Yeah, and then that stokes up like the anti-migrant sentiment in the US yeah. and 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 allows and people so like Trump on. to flourish. Yeah. 
or it could be like a really, really hot year in the Northern Hemisphere. And basically we rely on the ice in the Arctic to help stabilize our climate. So if we had an ice-free summer in the Arctic, that could send our weather mad altogether. And Dara, we've seen that already. Like we see, we've seen that in France and elderly people begin to die when the temperature hits a certain um, level. So yeah, and so you just get lots of dying of vulnerable and elderly people and people unable to leave their homes. Yeah, so that's why Huge I issues. yeah, so that's why I prefer to just think of it as a dice roll and not go into the specifics <laughs> all too often. <laughs> you know, I think I've read so many things about different aspects that would be affected. I've just sort of been like, you know, <laughs> you don't have to think about these details. You know, the frightening thing though, Dara, is like you know we're talking about the best aspiration is to hit one and a half, and the plan is with the Paris Agreement is to keep below two. On the trajectory we're on at the moment, we've like the ship of one and a half degrees has completely sailed unless we make super big changes super quickly. And two degrees is starting to look like, you know, possibly not that achievable either. So here, here's exactly, here's exactly where we can bring it back to COVID is that the Paris Agreement was made in 2015. This IPCC report was published in 2018. And said, right, we need to we need to turn things around. We need to aim for 1.5. So Leo Varadkar said, our own national public health emergency team met last night and has issued new advice to government. We are acting on that advice today. So for me, the key word there is new advice. It's like we thought this thing. Now we've got new advice. And now we're acting on that. The Paris Agreement, we're aiming for two degrees. The IPCC report 2018, new advice. Hello, world leaders. You need to aim for one and a half. Two degrees warming is not safe. And nobody has acted on that. And they're not really I, acting on the two degrees either. They're not. They're not acting on that. But I think one thing that I think has been good in general, in terms of Ireland's COVID response, has been that they've listened to the science. Yeah. Um, you know, and they have taken scientific uh, advice the whole way through. And that's one thing that is just so sorely lacking in in the climate response. And you can see at times it's killing them to listen to the scientific advice. I mean, they're having to rebel or push back against vested interests. They're having to push back against popular opinion. You know, they're really having to take a hard line and really stick to their guns and stick to their message. Um, and, you know, at times it hasn't been overly popular. But when you see the results, when you see that we didn't end up with people dying in corridors, Dara, is that your phone? Uh, yeah, it's, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought that was on silent. Sure, look, answer it there. Uh, you sure? Uh, okay. Uh, hello? Hi, guys. Oh, hey. Hi. Ellen from the future here. Uh, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, so I'm actually calling from February 2021 and I just want to let you know that uh, since the time of recording this episode, the political manoeuvring has changed quite Uh, a bit. So it turns out that in December 2020, the Irish politicians actually decided to reevaluate their priorities and they completely ignored scientific advice and that they, they... 
allowed everyone to begin. So socialising, they opened up the country and um, COVID infection within the community skyrocketed. And consequently, we had huge, you know, really significant levels of, of death rates and people in ICU. Oh, no. um, completely much worse than we had last March. Um, so I just want to warn you that the future's not that rosy, just so you know. Um, so I'll see you in a few months, okay? okay. Bye. 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 Jeez, time traveling as well as the vet- veterinary and the teaching <laughs> and the TV star, Ellen. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another another string to your bow. Time travel. <laughs> Just shows how politically volatile things are with COVID. Things change so fast. Oh, Dara, yeah. And just how important kind of cohesive, coherent and intelligent policy is and policy that listens to the experts. Yeah. I'm not looking forward to it. You know, to talk about the public not being happy with the restrictions, actually surveys have shown that the public are constantly ahead of politicians and the media, whether it's lockdowns or mandatory hotel quarantine. The vast majority of the population are actually in favour of listening to the science. And that might not always be reflected in the discourse, but there is a silent majority who are in favour of restrictions. And actually, I think the government are missing a trick with poor communication and maybe listening a bit too much to the loud voices. Yeah, and like Dara, the same is true of climate change. Like we only have to look at our Citizens' Assembly, which was groundbreaking. Um, and we had an overwhelming majority of people, you know, putting forward really progressive policies or looking for really progressive policies on climate change. And there's been quite a few surveys lately as well. Um, one that surveyed 1.2 million people, that's from the UN. And that of those 1.2 million surveyed, almost two thirds of those people agreed and said that climate change was a global emergency. They wanted greater action to to address the climate crisis. And not only that, but, you know, we think of the states as being really polarised. But there is a study called the Five America study. And in the, they, they ran it in 2015 and they've, they've looked at America again in 2020 and they've seen a huge jump in Americans, um, more even than the percentage that um, voted for Trump, looking for climate action, you know, and that they're concerned or really alarmed about climate change. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's, yeah, I really do think the public are so far ahead. And a similar survey to what you were talking about, Ellen, the European Investment Bank ran a Europe-wide survey on climate action and 74% of respondents said they would fly less post-pandemic, which I wow. just think is staggering. When, That's amazing. When you think of everyone saying, oh, I can't wait to get back to normal, can't wait to get yeah. away on a holiday. But actually, 74% have said they would fly less. Um, and once again, that's not really reflected in, in the political discourse. So actually, if you're one of these people thinking, oh, I'm going to fly less, you're actually in the majority. That might not always be apparent to you. No, that's, yeah, that's really important, I think, to realise you're not alone. Because I think sometimes being the silent majority can feel like being, a, you can feel a bit lonely in the silent majority. Yeah. Because you yeah. don't know whether people think like you. Yeah, and it comes back to making sure the politicians know that that is how you feel. 
So I think I think that thing of listening to the listening to the scientific advice is something that we need. It's something that we have to start doing in relation to climate action from from the government. Listen to Greta. Um, it's just that's what she says. <laughs> but she just says, "Listen to the science." Exactly. You know, that's that's literally what she says. Um, but that is what needs to be done. And I think uh, if you think about the the kind of you know the little. There's a there's a the IPCC always has this little kind of quote as well. They they have like every bit of warming matters, every, you know every year matters and every action matters. And I think that's yeah, yeah, yeah you know yeah. big actions, small actions, they all matter. But we need to take action. You know, one other thing that struck me about you know about that thing of of making the speech and listening to the science. Um, and making a decision for for Leo Varadkar to acknowledge this is really bad. Is that with COVID, it took, you know, what was it, a hundred cases, its first death. You know, it took it took the COVID crisis to get to a point that it was clearly having an impact. And then also, you know, I think the public opinion was we need to close the schools. You know, the majority of people were ready for schools mm-hmm. to close. So that's what it took. It took it took the physical crisis to get bad enough and it took public opinion to say you need to acknowledge this is bad and you need to take action. And the problem with that in terms of climate change it's much slower. Is if it it's if it needs to get bad enough, you know, if it needs to get really bad that it's plain as day we need to take action, then we've already learned about the time lag, then we're too late. We are so for me, what's it going to take for Ortizhuk to come out and make a speech like this about climate change? It's going to take overwhelming public pressure. You know, it's going to take politicians to see what wow, the people really need and really want this change. Because otherwise, you know, we're never going to see that physical reality like we've seen with covid so we have to, it has to come, I think, from, from the public response. And I think the perfect solution for this episode is exactly what you've said, overwhelming public opinion. How can we act? We need each and every one of us to show our politicians that it is of our opinion that we must act on climate change with the same urgency and the same seriousness and give it the same weight as we have had to the COVID crisis. Put the same supports in place. Make the same decisions. Listen to the science. Act swiftly. We don't need to be perfect, but we need to act fast. But our politicians won't change unless we tell them we want change. And that's what we can do. That's the take-home point for me from this, is we need to tell our politicians that we want change. Yeah, yeah. 100% 100% agree. Um, and I suppose one thing that then came up in this speech that can sort of aid that collective effort and can hinder it was there was loads of stuff in, in Leo Varadkar's speech about how we were all in it together. So let's hear what he said. And it's going to involve big changes in the way we live our lives. And I know that I'm asking people to make enormous sacrifices. But we're doing it for each other. Together we can slow the virus in its tracks and push it back. Acting together as one nation, we can save many lives. And definitely those couple of weeks, you know, towards the end of March, start of April, 
it was really it was a really uncomfortable time you know like everyone's world was thrown you know people re you know just any reference points that we'd previously had were, were thrown away but for me and i know for a lot of people that sense of being in it together really really helped to you know to to keep people doing the right thing, to keep people making the sacrifices. Yeah, you weren't doing it for um, yourself. You were doing it for your neighbours. You were doing it for your parents. You were doing it yeah, for the people in the yeah. nursing homes. And you were doing it for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, as, as time wore on, it sort of became clear that we weren't all in it together. You know, we saw, I think... We learned more about the science and some people realized, uh, chances are if I'm young and fit and healthy, it's going to do very little to me. So I can, I'm Grant. And some people lost that sense of being in it together from there. And then we also had, you know. If I'm important and perhaps have a political edge here and I can say that I need to go to an important golfing dinner because... (laughs) Absolutely. Politician. So, uh, for for all our for all our listeners abroad, in the summer in Ireland, there was a big junket essentially where some of some of the political elite, political establishment, judges, uh, politicians, high court judges, uh, banking lobbyists, all met up for a golf tournament and a big dinner that breached COVID guidelines, and that was that was a national scandal. I think that was the day, you know. There was so much anger those couple of days, and people realised, ah, oh, we're not, we're not all in this together. You had people whose um, whose parents had died alone in nursing homes. You had yeah. people who hadn't seen, you know, their little newborn grandchildren. You know, who'd made a sacrifice, who'd made this huge sacrifice for the good of everybody else. But then, you kind of had it thrown in your face when you saw you know, again, as you say, the elite going. Actually, no, we'd love to have you know drinks and a dinner. Um, in a local hotel and breach every guideline going because, well, we're different or this the yeah. rules don't apply yeah, to yeah. us. And I think, Ellen, that applies so much to climate change as well, that we are all in it together. You know, if you look at things in, in the bigger picture, we have to all be in it together to take real climate action. We have to have a sense of responsibility to each other to people far worse off than us in, you know, in developing countries, to to young people that don't have any voices, and even to future generations that aren't born yet, you know, are going to be severely affected. We have to be all in this together, but we're not. We know we're we're in Ireland here, and things will get bad for us. But, but not at all in comparison to other parts of the world. That aspect of climate justice, you know, that the people and the countries who have caused the most by way of emissions, they've used those emissions to build robust societies, you know, build good infrastructure and build comfortable lives for for their citizens. And the countries that haven't made the emissions don't have any of that and are going to be more adversely affected. So we need a really sort of wide lens view of this in this together uh, collective solidarity. Ah, oh, sorry, my phone's gone off again. Dar, you were supposed to turn that off. <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry. Uh, 
Will I answer Should it? Should I answer it now? Because right. you look okay. answered. Hello? Hi. Hi. future Ellen here again, lads. Ellen. Listening back to you, lads. Look, things have changed really quickly regarding the politics around COVID. And I'm sorry to say, you know, I'm listening to you talk about global inequality, but we're actually starting to see global injustice rear its ugly head in relation to the vaccine distribution in February 2021, where I am just now. Um, There are some parts of the world and they won't have their populations vaccinated anytime soon and not even their populations. They will not have their frontline health workers vaccinated anytime soon. And we are putting our own young, healthy, strong people ahead of frontline healthcare workers in the developing countries. And the WHO have said that we are on a brink of catastrophic moral failure by not distributing the vaccine globally, by essentially hoarding it. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that, future Ellen. Cheery. Okay. Sorry and bye. bye. Cheery as always. Bye. Don't call again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Only with good news. <laughs> that is interesting, though. I mean, even without considering. Oh, Dara, it the, is. Even even without considering the injustice of the COVID vaccine distribution, if you do think about the injustice of all the money that was pumped into that compared to other vaccines, so we have malaria. That kills 3,000 children every day around the world. And the latest update is that the vaccine might be ready by 2024. And that's a disease that we've had with us for ages. So that really, really highlights that global injustice. So I I think, yeah, I think just to go back sort of on what what we've been saying for the last little while in terms of... um, that sense of being in it together, you know. And some are in it more than others. Yeah. Like Animal Farm, some are more equal than others. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's something we just need to decide, you know, like as a, that's something that needs that political leadership to say, right, are we really all in this together? And let's make sure we're in this together and let's be fair or else we're not. You know, and, and and COVID has taught us so much about that in the power of those first few weeks of people to abide by the regulations because we all just had this sense of, yeah, we're all in this together. We're doing it for the greater good. And then since then, we've seen that trust and that belief eroded and sort of the the way that can that can really hinder real action and real progress. Yeah, I think that just is to sum up sort of what we've been <laughs> what we've been saying uh so far. Absolutely. Um and so with change, the fact the government not only implemented change but they supported that change as well. They financially supported yeah. those who yeah, were yeah. affected most. For sure, for sure. All right, we're at the section of the episode where we're talking about what action our listeners can take. So, Ellen, gotta say, you've already made a brilliantly impassioned cry for people to hold their politicians in- accountable. But in terms of what that looks like, let's get a bit more specific about our actions. So, first of all, I do think that we just need to demand more from our politicians. 
we're seeing some politicians here who are just failing miserably in a crisis. And I'm not just talking about like the high profile ones. There's an awful lot of politicians who have been conveniently keeping a low profile as well. Um, And we're in the midst of a crisis, entering into Mm -hmm. an era of crisis. And we're going to need really, really good politicians. Like, it's as simple as we need politicians who think about the long term, think about the big picture, Mm -hmm. who listen to the science, who say that we're all in it together and then actually show that with their politics and their policies. (laughs) Talk the talk and walk the walk. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So even before we get into the sort of actions, we need to think about those criteria and think, right, which politicians are up to this and which ones aren't. Yeah, Dara, and you know, you're absolutely right. We do need really, really good politicians. But as as public, as people, we actually also need a politically engaged and politically active society or public. It's just, it's not enough anymore to just vote and think, right, that's my job done now for another four years or two years or whatever the voting cycle is. Um, and it's, you know, it's not that difficult to be politically engaged. It's it's like one thing you can do is you can let your TDs, your councillors, your government representatives know that you're concerned about climate change. You can send them an email, you can send them a text, you can give them a phone call. Yeah, yeah. And it can just be as simple as saying, hi, I'm your constituent. I've been getting really worried about climate change and the lack of climate action. And I'd like you to do more. And there's a website actually, findmytd.com, that will tell you who your TDs Mm -hmm. are and their email addresses. So hop onto that. Or if you see an interesting article and think my TD should know this, send it on to them. Or if there's a political event coming up like COP26 in Glasgow in November... Just say, you know, you'd like them to get more active on climate change Yeah, in the lead up to that. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. Just as long as you're doing it, you're doing it right. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, if you want to kind of, if you're nervous of doing it on your own or you'd like somebody to hold your hand or even just to get that momentum behind you, you can actually get involved with a group. Um, so there's there's one group that's very active in in kind of climate change lobbying for people like, you know, just everyday people and they're called One Future um, and Stop Climate Chaos and um, they actually organise online kind of Zoom meetings where you can lobby your TD over uh, over Zoom which is and it's it's really really good and they kind of they talk to you before you you go on and they kind of give you a few hints and tips of what to say and then you can actually talk to your politicians. Yeah One Future are really good and they get, yeah, get a group of people together chatting to your TD about the issues. They usually do it around a specific issue like like the publication of the climate bill or yeah. something specific. So it's it's really good. And just demand that your politicians are informed about climate change. Like they need to know. They need to know and they need to know that we care. They need to know you care. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. Knowing isn't enough, but knowing we want change. Yeah. I suppose yeah. I suppose turning that silent majority into uh Vocal majority. Vocal majority. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, ge- we're going to finish this episode differently uh, today. We have talked a lot about that speech that Leo Varadkar gave on the 12th of March. So we have reimagined it as if that speech 
was addressing climate change. So we have rewritten parts of it. Parts of it actually stay the same. And we have got Ellen reading the climate version in parallel with Leo reading the COVID version. I can be like the Taoiseach. <laughs> Ellen the Taoiseach. <laughs> okay, so uh, shall we do this? Oh, actually, I see them now. So it looks like our two Taoiseachs, Leo Varadkar and Ellen Hegarty, are about to speak. Let's go over to the steps of the Irish Embassy in Washington, D.C. now and have a listen. Uh, good morning, everyone. I need to speak to you about coronavirus and COVID-19. Good morning, everyone. I need to talk to you about global warming and the climate crisis. Our own National Public Health Emergency Team met last night and has issued new advice to government. We're acting on that advice today. The IPCC issued new advice in a groundbreaking report in 2018. We are acting on that advice today. There will be many more cases. More people will get sick, and unfortunately we must face the tragic reality that some people will die. There will be more climate disruption. More people, animals and ecosystems will be adversely affected and unfortunately, we must face the tragic reality that many millions of people will die with more displaced from their homes. The virus is all over the world. It will continue to spread, but it can be slowed. Its impact can be reduced, making it easier for our health service to cope and giving our scientists more time to develop better testing, treatments and a vaccine. The impact of climate change is being witnessed all over the world. It will continue to worsen, but it can be slowed. Its impact can be reduced by lowering emissions, and we know what we need to do to adapt so that we can live better lives amidst this crisis. But we know that older people and those with a chronic illness are at real risk, and we have a duty as a society to protect ourselves, and above all, to protect others, our parents and grandparents, our family and friends, our co-workers and neighbours. We know that people in developing countries and those who have contributed least to the problem are at real risk. We have a duty as a global society to protect ourselves and above all to protect others. Our citizens and those of less developed countries, our children, future generations, wildlife and ecosystems on whom our survival depends. We have not witnessed a pandemic of this nature in living memory. We have not witnessed warming like this in the history of humanity. And this, this is, is uncharted, uncharted territory, territory for us. We said we, said we, would, we would take, take the, the right actions at the, at the right time. We have, we have to, to move now to have the, the greatest impact. impact. I, know I know that some of this is coming as a real shock and, and it's going to involve big changes in the way, in the way we, we live our lives. lives. I know that, I am I know that I'm asking people to make enormous sacrifices. sacrifices. But we're doing it for each other. Together we can slow the virus in its tracks and push it back. Together, we can slow warming in its tracks and eventually stop it. Acting, Acting together, together as one nation, we can save many lives. lives. Our economy will suffer, but it will bounce back. Our economy will change in the short term to develop a system which puts human well-being at the centre in the long run. Lost time in school or college will be recovered. And in time, our lives will go back to normal. In time, our lives will be better than ever before. Above all, we, we all need to look out for each other. other. Ireland is a great nation, and we are a great people. We've experienced hardship and struggle before. We've overcome many trials in the past. With our determination, 
and our spirits. And once again, we, we will prevail. prevail. Thank you very much. This episode of The COVID Alarm Clock was written and presented by Dara Wynne and Ellen Hagerty. It was produced and edited by Robert Cotter. Please follow us on social media for up-to-date news on the podcast and the climate crisis. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at COVID Alarm Clock. And tune in to the next episode when our episode will be on the subject of power. And until then, bye! Bye, 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 bye,